Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Monsters lurking under your bed or deep in the forest. That unknown creature lurking just out of sight and frighteningly imagined creatures, ghosts, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, we're looking into a bizarre disappearance. Yep, today it's going to be short and sweet. So, with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, is yours. So, choose your poison accordingly. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say Vatican, that will be a single shot. And every time I say Pope, that's going to be a double shot. And yes, I know, I'm probably going to go to hell for this. But hey, we already know that I have a desk job lined up, so big whoop. Now that the business end is out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's Dark Enigma. So, don your goofy Pope hat, break out your limited edition Pope Mobile, as we look into the mysterious disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi. Mysterious disappearances happen all of the time. For whatever reasons, some people just suddenly go missing without a trace, leaving behind a wake of confusion as authorities and loved ones try to piece together what's happened to them. Perhaps one may be inclined to think that these vanishings are purely the realm of dangerous places or remote wildernesses. But on occasion, we come across one that happens in the last place that one would expect this to happen. Such is the case of a series of unexplained disappearances that occurred in one of the world's most holiest of cities, Vatican City, the seat of the Roman Catholic Church, and a place of soaring, ornate cathedrals, chapels, museums, and beautiful, breathtaking basilicas. A place that seems to be as far from evil as one can possibly be. And yet, these disappearances would go on to become a baffling unsolved crime that would eventually hint at a dark underbelly lurking beneath the sacred and holy veneer of the seat of one of the world's most powerful religions. Officially called Vatican City State, Vatican City is a walled enclave within the city of Rome, Italy, which is recognized as the world's smallest independent state in terms of both area and population. An ecclesiastical or sacerdotal monarchical state, say that ten times fast, it is the seat of the Pope 
and along with the Holy See, is one of the most important places of the Roman Catholic religion, and it's over 1.2 billion adherents around the world. It is also a world-renowned tourist attraction, harboring some of the world's most famous sculptures and paintings within its museums, as well as various world-famous cultural sites such as St. Peter's Basilica and the Sistine Chapel. The most well-known of the Vatican City disappearances occurred in 1983, when a 15-year-old second-year student of a high school in Rome by the name of Emanuela Orlandi went missing. Orlandi was a citizen of Vatican City and the daughter of a lay official in the Vatican whose job was organizing papal functions. On June 22, 1983, Emanuela was late for a music class at a music school she attended three times a week in Rome. Emanuela's worried sister reported that she had received a call from the girl explaining that she was late because she had made an appointment to meet with a representative of Avon Cosmetics to talk about a job offer to sell cosmetics. Emanuela then allegedly met with the Avon representative before a music lesson and afterwards told her friend about it, after which she said farewell to the friend and allegedly climbed into a dark green colored BMW at a bus stop. She was never seen again. When she didn't return home from school as expected, Emanuela's concerned parents contacted authorities but were told that the girl had probably just gone off with friends as teenagers, well, happen to do all the time. When the girl had still not come home the following day, her parents called the director of the music school who informed them that the girl had never shown up for her class and was unable to provide any information on where she might have been. Over the following two days, ads were placed in several newspapers begging for any information anybody might have on the girl's whereabouts, and the family home phone number was listed. This would be where things get a fair bit more bizarre for us. The Orlandi family began to receive several strange phone calls from various people with widely varying accents. The first such call was on June 25th from a man who identified himself as a 16-year-old boy named Père Luigi. The young man told them that he had been with his fiancée at the Piazza Navona when they had met the missing girl. The man claimed that Emanuela had introduced herself as Barbarella and had said that she had run away from home after selling Avon cosmetics. So, one, I'm going to say... Since when are you 16 and you have a fiancé? Okay, just going to leave that right there. And seriously, Barbarella, I'm just going to say, cool movie, but no. Okay. The call at first sounded a little too bizarre to be true, but Pierre Luigi knew a lot of details about the girl, stating that she had been carrying her flute and was wearing glasses that she claimed she did not like, which was true. The young man also stated that Emanuela had had her hair cut. Another odd call came on June the 28th when a man calling himself Mario called the home. Can I just stop for a second and say seriously with the stereotypical Italian name? I mean, come on. Can we come up with something a little bit better? I mean, throw a Bruce in there. Come on. Anyways. All right. 
Anyways, Mario claimed to be the owner of a bar near the music school that Emanuela attended and said that a new customer resembling the missing girl had been to his establishment, introducing herself as Barbara. Yeah, not Barbarella, but Barbara. Mario claimed that Barbara had told him that she had run away from home but planned to return for her sister's wedding. Hmm. By this time, the search for the girl had, well, become desperate. Thousands of posters with Emanuela's face on them had been put up all over the city, and the Pope himself even came forward on many occasions, pleading to those responsible to let her go. It was around this time that the anonymous phone calls started to become at once more frequent and also more menacing. A series of calls to the family said that the girl had been captured by terrorists who intended to exchange her for the release of a man by the name of Mamet Ali Agsi. And I know I butchered that one, but you know what? If you can pronounce it, more power to you. Anyways, he was a Turkish man who had been detained after attempting to assassinate Pope John Paul II at St. Peter's Square on March 13th of 1981. One of the more persistent of these callers was a man with an American accent who came to be known as La Maracano, or the American, because, you know, we don't come up with great nicknames. The American was an eloquent-sounding man, obviously not American, anyways, who suggested that an exchange could be made for Ali Aksi and demanded that the negotiation be approved by the Pope and carried out within 20 days. The American was extremely persuasive, as in one call he produced a recording of a voice that highly resembled Emanuela's, and he would offer more evidence of having the girl as well, such as photocopies of her music school ID, sheets of music that she had been studying, and even a handwritten note from the girl. The man also claimed that the previous callers, including Pier Luigi and Mario, were all part of the same terrorist organization and were in on the kidnapping. In total, the American would made 16 phone calls, all traced to public telephone booths. As promising a lead as these sounded, things all fell through when the authorities in charge of handling the kidnapping case denied that there was any evidence to link the abduction and the attempted assassination of the Pope. Because why, right? On July the 8th, yet another strange call came, this time from a man with a Middle Eastern accent. In this case, the call was much more ominous than the others, with the man claiming that he had the girl and planned to kill her if demands were not met. The unidentified man demanded the release of Aksa within 20 days or the girl would be killed. The demand was refused and after this, the case went cold and has gone unsolved to this very day, remaining one of history's most inexplicable, mysterious disappearances. For years, authorities have followed numerous tips, leads, and alleged sightings of the missing girl, all of which have invariably led, well, nowhere. Various theories have been put forth over the years as to what happened to Emmanuel, Emanuela Orlandi, ranging from the somewhat plausible to the, well, truly bizarre, all with varying degrees of evidence to back them up. One is that the girl had actually, in fact, been kidnapped by a terrorist organization in a bid to free Mamet Ali Aksi, just as had been claimed by the various mysterious phone calls. 
The main suspect in this scenario is a Turkish ultra-nationalist neo-fascist youth organization called the Grey Wolves. I'm just saying, ultra-nationalist neo-fascist youth organization, come up with a better name than Grey Wolves. Seriously, I want something a little more exciting than that. And Aksa actually belonged to this group. This group. Aksa himself would go on record as saying as much in a prison interview with an Italian news program. In the interview, Aksa claimed that Emanuela Orlandi had been captured by the group and that she had eventually been moved to a cloistered convent where she remained alive and well, although there was no credible evidence to back up these claims. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and go, why would you grab someone like Emanuela Orlandi, first of all, she's not even 18 years old. She has no standing in Vatican City. She has no control over what the Pope does. Yes, her father probably has something to do with his schedule, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he has any sway over the over the Pope. So why kidnap this poor girl, right? Makes no sense. Up until recent years, Agsa would go on to continue to make such statements. In 2006, he published a letter in which he claimed that both Orlandi and yet another woman who had vanished in 1983 by the name of Mirella Gregori had both been abducted by the Grave Wolves to exchange for his release and had subsequently been brought to an unspecified royal palace in Liechtenstein. Yeah, okay. Aksa was released from prison in 2010, after which he gave a televised interview in which he made even more bizarre, paranoid claims. In addition to stating that the Vatican itself had hired him to assassinate the Pope, he also said that in fact Orlandi had been kept prisoner by the Vatican and was currently alive and well, living in a Catholic monastery as a nun in a Central European country. None of Aksa's increasingly bold claims have ever been supported by any evidence and seem perhaps more like the ravings of a lunatic. I know, right? Because, you know, lunatics and, you know, terrorists, kind of the same thing sometimes. Anyways, a common sentiment that underlies many of the theories is that the Vatican itself had a hand in the disappearances or that it at least made efforts to stall the investigation at every single turn. One theory is that Orlandi was kidnapped under the orders of Paul Marcinkus, who was an archbishop at the time and ran the Vatican's bank, after evidence of criminal activities was uncovered by the girl's father, Ercole Orlandi. Marcinkus consistently used his standing and connections to avoid answering any questions on the matter and perhaps took the truth with him to his grave when he died in 2006. The bank connection would get even deeper and more bizarre in 2011 when Antonio Mancini, a member of the Italian organized crime syndicate Banda della Magliana, claimed that the kidnapping of Orlandi had been an attempt by the mafia to get the Vatican to repay large amounts of money that had been borrowed from them. The claims show links to the death of the banker Roberto Calvaker due to his Vatican connections. Calvi was found hanging under Blackfriars Bridge in London in June of 1982. His corpse pockets stuffed with cash and precious stones after what is believed to have been from a falling out with the mafia after a botched money laundering operation. The mafia connection is perhaps most noticeable in one of the weirdest yet intriguing leads that has come in the case over the years. In 2005, 
an anonymous caller to the Italian crime show, Who Has Seen, suggested that the secret to solving the case lay in opening the tomb of the infamous gangster Enrico de Perez, who allegedly had killed the girl as a favor to the vicar general of Rome at the time, Cardinal Ugo Poletti. The mysterious claim was imbued with a bit of renewed credibility when the mobster's former girlfriend admitted that he had told her he had killed Orlandi. Various anonymous callers would go on to bolster the claims that there was some clue to be found within de Pettis's tomb. Enrico de Pettis, also known as Renatino, was known as a rather charismatic gangster who was the leader of a gang called Banda della Magliana, a vicious group known to have had a hand in a lucrative drug trade in Rome. The very same gang that had been plying the Vatican for money had been linked to the death of the banker, Roberto Calvi, and who reportedly had the police in their pockets. The gangster de Pettis was brutally gunned down in an ambush by rival gang members in 1990 in the picturesque cobbled streets of an area known as Campo de Fiore. After the anonymous calls, it was believed that the mobster's tomb might actually hold the body of Orlandi, which had never been found. The tomb of the gangster de Pettis is in itself a bit of an anomaly. Despite his checkered criminal past, the burial was made at the Opus Dei Basilica of Sant'Apollinari, close to Piazza Navona in the center of Rome, a sacred burial site mostly reserved for only the most senior and prestigious of church officials. The burial of such a notorious and ruthless criminal here was unheard of, and a clear violation of cardinal law, and was oddly sanctioned by Poletti himself reportedly because the criminal had repented for his crimes in prison and had made large donations to the church as well as actively participating in charity work helping the poor. Oddly, the Vatican resisted any attempts to open the the tomb for seven years, during which time in 2008 the former girlfriend of de Pettis came forth with the information that the late Archbishop Paul Marcinkus had had a hand in hiring the gangster, which along with the lack of cooperation in opening the tomb bolstered rumors of a church cover-up. Since Poletti had died in 1997, and so was unable to give any say in the matter, no one knew what they would find in the mysterious tomb. Finally, after much much pressure from the public and Orlandi's family, the Vatican finally agreed to open up the tomb to see what clues might lie within. Many expected that Orlandi's body would be found right there next to that of the gangster de Pettis, or that de Pettis' body would be absent altogether. De Pettis was apparently not a subtle or humble man, as his name was emblazoned upon the tomb with an estimated 12,000 pounds of diamonds. And that's pounds as in British pounds, not pounds like as in weight. When the tomb was finally opened to a breathless public, De Pettis's corpse was found to indeed be in the tomb, dressed in a dark suit and tie, and in rather remarkably good condition. No other bodies were found to be in the tomb, at least not intact ones. Scattered around the crypt, investigators made the macabre discovery of over 200 boxes of assorted unidentified human bones. The find was so shocking that authorities went about checking for more hidden vaults before getting down to analyzing the remains. 
It was found that they all seemed to date back to pre-Napoleonic times, but an, in, but an in-depth DNA analysis was planned. So far, the results are inconclusive. The promise of an answer, elusive, and the disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi remains as mysterious as ever. Perhaps one of the creepiest claims involving Orlandi's disappearance came in 2012 from one of the Catholic Church's tops exorcists, Gabriel Amorth. The exorcist, who claims to have overseen thousands of exorcisms, sensationally said that Emanuela Orlandi was kidnapped in order to be used as a slave in sordid Vatican sex parties, after which she was murdered in cold blood. Claims to which the Vatican has been unwilling to answer, because, like, who would answer that? Like, okay, yeah, I stole this person so I could have, you know, a slave for my sex party, and yeah, we just killed her. Like, somebody's really going to come out and say, yeah, that happened. The 84-year-old Amorth, who was ordained a priest in 1954, also said that the alleged sex parties also involved members of an unspecified country's foreign embassy to the Holy See. Amorth said of the incident, and yes, I am quoting, It has already previously been stated by deceased Monsignor Simeon Duca, an archivist at the Vatican who was asked to recruit girls for parties with the help of the Vatican gendarmes. I believe Emanuela ended up in this circle. I have never believed in the international theory overseas kidnappers. I have motives to believe that this was just a case of sexual exploitation. End quote. In all fairness, the exorcist claims should be taken with a big old grain of salt, as Amworth has made numerous far-out statements over the years. He once stated that the Nazi leader Adolf Hitler and Russian dictator Joseph Stalin were both possessed by the devil, and that Pope Pius XII had attempted a long-distance exorcism of Hitler. He also proclaimed that the popular series of Harry Potter books were the evil work of the devil. So, yeah, he's a little bit of a nut job. Anyways, despite all of the theories and false leads, some pieces of alleged solid physical evidence as to the fate of Emanuela Orlandi have surfaced over the years. In particular, on the morning of May 14, 2001, a skull was discovered in the Gregory VII Church near the Vatican. The skull was found in a confessional and was small, lacking a jawbone, and was packed together with an image of Padre Pio. Tests were launched to see if it might be the skull of Orlandi, but these turned out to be negative. Sightings of Emanuela continue to crop up from time to time, in many dis disparate locations, but these have also led to very little conclusive evidence. On July 11th of 2019, the latest trail led her family and a Vatican-appointed forensic scientist to two tombs inside the Vatican walls, the burial places of princesses well over a century dead. The team only found yet another mystery. The tombs were empty. Even the bodies of the dead princesses were missing. It was yet another strange turn for a family that has suffered false leads, red herrings, and intense media attention since the girl disappeared at age 15 on June 22nd of 1983. Their quest to discover her fate has taken them down many torturous paths, following up on tips, anonymous letters, and reports of sightings. But clues in this case have been scanty, despite investigators' efforts. 
This was not the first exhumation in search of her remains. The path to the tombs began in late 2017, when Emanuela's brother, Pietro Orlandi, was approached by the first of several people working inside the Vatican who suggested that Emanuela might be buried in the Teutonic Cemetery, which for centuries was a final resting place for people of Germanic origin. His sources told him to seek the place where an angel was pointing in the cemetery, which is between St. Peter's Basilica and Paul VI's audience hall. That led her brother to the tomb of Princess Sophie of Hohenlohe, who died in 1836. Giovanni Arcudi, a professor, a professor of forensic medicine at the University of Rome Torvegada, began the exhumation of the tomb on, on that Thursday. Mr. Arcudi was authorized by the Vatican's chief prosecutor to analyze the contents of the tomb, as well as the adjacent tomb of Princess Carlotta Federica of Mecklenburg, who died in 1840, and take samples for DNA testing. The theory was that Emanuela's body was inside one of these tombs. Through the family's lawyer, Laura Sagro, in February, Mr. Orlandi formally asked the Vatican to open the tomb of Princess Sophie. The family received approval the previous month to have both tombs opened, but any hope that the tombs would provide answers to the family were quickly dashed when the Vatican issued a statement hours after the operation began that said there were no human remains or funerary urns. Princess Sophie's tomb led to a large underground space that was completely empty, the statement said, while the tomb of Princess Carlotta had no human remains. The Vatican added that the cemetery had undergone work during the first part of the 19th century and again in the 1960s and 1970s, and that it would examine the documentation regarding these interventions. Ms. Sagro said the family was trying to understand why they had been set on yet another fruitless search. She said, and I quote, we expected everything today, but not to find two empty tombs. We want to know why we were sent there and why there was nothing. After the tombs were found empty, Emanuela's brother and the leader of the family's decades-long efforts told the Italian affiliate of Sky News, and I quote, Part of me was relieved that Emanuela wasn't there. He added in a separate interview that his family has become used to illusions and disillusions and that they had known that the exhumation could have been a further waste of time. Still, he says, I was surprised that there was nothing at all. Mr. Orlandi said he had called on the Vatican to investigate after receiving several tips from people working in the Vatican, though none of them were there at the time of his sister's disappearance. Mr. Orlandi said that the Vatican's overture had been important because after decades of denying any links with the case, there was an admission that there is a possibility of internal responsibility. But the missing princesses, even the sarcophagus in Princess Charlotte's tomb, was empty, posed a new dilemma for the Vatican. He said, now even the heirs don't know where they've gone. I think this is a problem for the Vatican that will have to be justified. For all of the tantalizing promises of answers and false leads, the answers to what became of Emanuela Orlandi and indeed the other missing teen, Mirella Gregori, who vanished just 40 days prior, have never been found. Their whereabouts remain as much a mystery today as they have ever been. 
Throughout, the church has allegedly shown relatively little interest in getting to the bottom of the case, and there are those who think that the, Ma- the Vatican officials know more than they are telling. One investigator stated, and I quote, There are still people alive and inside the Vatican who know the truth, end quote. For over four decades, the mystery of the Vatican disappearances has haunted the Orlandi family, and closure has remained elusive. No new evidence, leads, or suspects have been forthcoming, and all there is is speculation, wild claims, and unproven theories. What happened to this young girl all of those years ago? Was it terrorism, the case of a confused runaway, or are there darker motives that point to sinister workings and machinations deep within one of the world's most powerful religious institutions? To this day, no one knows for sure, and the mysterious Vatican disappearance remains as murky and unsolved today as they have always been. And with that, we've come to the end of the episode. I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think. Save yourself an email. Don't bother telling me that I'm going to hell for going after the Roman Catholic Church. I already know, so it's fine. You don't need to send me that email. But if you do want to share your thoughts with me and you got something fun to talk about, you can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show or you just want to tell me what you think, you're bored, you need some somebody to talk to, drop me a line. I do reply to every single email. And on that note, that's all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio and... Don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.